Read this with me, please. You know it well. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Go ahead and be seated. We're starting a new series this week, and we're calling it Live the Prayer. And it's going to be a study through the Lord's Prayer, but I hope it's going to be a little bit different than maybe some of the studies that you have been through or, or, or some of the times that you have reflected on the Lord's Prayer before. Uh, at the beginning of this week, I had this amazing opportunity to uh, get messed up in some of my understandings about ministry. And uh, that may not sound so great at first, so let me explain. Uh, I've been blessed to be a part of a group over these past few months um, called the Evangelical Pastors Fellowship that's here in town. Uh, We meet monthly for encouragement and for prayer and relationship building among the church leadership around the town, keeping us all together on this mission that we've all got to shepherd the city of Victoria together. Um, and they decided this fall to attempt a two-day retreat, and we were going to go up to Camp Imidine, uh to do that, but we ended up having too few people to keep the reservation there, and so instead we stayed in town and kind of sequestered ourselves off on Monday and Tuesday to focus on our personal growth as ministers uh, and, and to, to enhance our ability to serve our congregations. And we jokingly called it a conclave, which was really fun, um, I guess, for us as evangelicals to pretend that we're Catholic for a little while or something. I'm not sure. But, like, don't worry, we didn't dress up in little funny red hats. There was no colored smoke, you know, nothing like that, all right? Um, but we, I got to sit at the feet of Rod Wilson, uh, who's the president of Regent College, for, for a couple of days. And, um, boy, I'll tell you, it was really, really good to just kind of just soak up some wisdom from somebody that's been in ministry much, much, much longer than I have. Um, and the focus of our talk was in two areas. And, and the first was understanding the biographical nature of ministry. Um, the relationship between my story and God's story in perfecting the craft of ministry. A lot of times we fall into the trap that like when bad stuff happens in ministry, it's our fault. And when good stuff happens, it's all because of God. And it's kind of like, well, no, it's, it's a blending of those things, right? There's, there's a blending of your brokenness as an individual and God's mercy and grace as being God. And, and that's what writes the story of everybody as a Christian. So that's what writes the story of you as a minister, which may sound kind of like a duh thing, but we forget that a lot. And it's good to be reminded of that. But the other thing that we talked about Um, was this idea that we as ministers, we as churches, we as individuals, that sometimes we fall into the curse of what was called the either-or, rather than embracing the blessing and sometimes the difficulty of the both-and. And this was a powerful realization, and that's where some of this getting messed up in my ideas comes into play in a good way, and of just how many scenarios and how many beliefs that I personally fall into this either-or mindset on rather than embracing the full counsel of God in the both-and. Let me give you an example. Work and Sabbath. You're already cringing, okay? And this is not even what this sermon is about, okay? But, I, like, I got confronted about how much those two things exist in contention in my life rather than harmony. 
how I section these things mutually exclusive when, when you know, I section these things too out as like two mutually exclusive things, okay? And they're not that way for God. And they're not that way for Jesus. If you look in the Word, when God rests from the creative work of Genesis, He doesn't stop working. The Logos is still actively holding the universe together even though God is resting. So He's resting, but He's not resting. And this is not like a workaholic interpretation of the Sabbath. I'm just, I'm just trying to help you realize it's, it's not near as sectioned out as we'd like it to believe. You think of Jesus, and he keeps getting in trouble with the religious leaders of the day because he keeps doing stuff on the Sabbath. And you're not supposed to do stuff on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to the religious leaders is like, well, the problem is, is that you don't understand the Sabbath. Which gives you pause a little bit to say, well, if the Sabbath is rest and you're working, it seems pretty clear cut to me. What is it? And instead of, instead of Jesus portraying this either-or mindset where he's, he's working really hard and then he's got to get away, and then he's working really hard and he's got to get away, there's this harmony in the Scripture of, of Jesus being at rest and about the work of the Lord and at rest and about the work of the... And it's all kind of together and moving in harmony in his lifestyle. Jesus shows this complement of, of, of depletion, of giving yourself, and replenishment in the spirit. And it's not only healthy, it also makes Sabbath something doable again. I mean, how often are you and I scrabbling around to try and turn everything off and shut everything down so that we, be, we could like become monks for a day? And that's what Sabbath is, supposedly. And we can't do it because we're looking at life as either you're working or you're on Sabbath. Rather than this both and blending where we're, we're working and resting or harmonized and, and we're, we're depleting ourselves for the kingdom of God and being replenished by the Spirit of God are something that's harmonized by the Spirit of God and our work in Him. See, this sermon isn't even about the Sabbath, but that both and shift on that topic alone, you may be like, okay, my brain's full, let's just pray. Okay, I, but... But that's, that's, prim- that's precisely my point of how often we follow into, well, you're either, it's either work or it's Sabbath, rather than it could be both work and Sabbath, like moving together in harmony in the Spirit of God. Think about, think about it in churches. Think about it in, in, in movements, in history. What's more important, evangelism or social justice? This is an interesting question. This is a very, very, Krista would say this is a live question. Okay, I like that. She says that to me a lot, and I like that. Okay, it's not a dead one. It's an alive one. We, we, people are actively asking this. What's more important, souls of people or bodies of people? There's been this ongoing argument throughout, like, not just, we think about it in terms of the last, you know, 100 years. There's been an ongoing argument through all of church history about this one. Like, what's more important, souls or bodies? And we're just in the latest revolution of it swinging one way or the other. I'm pretty young, but I remember all the discussions when I was growing up about the importance of winning souls. And that's what made all of us distinct from any other service in the world. And that the mainline churches, like we used that like it was a bad word, um, were, were, were just out to feed the poor. And they held out the social, we used the social gospel. We used that as a bad word too. Um, like, like it was an insult. They were doing that, but not us because we weren't counting bodies. We were counting souls. I don't even know how you count souls, but... But we were, right? And we had that part. And now, of course, you, you, you read the current literature and social justice is now in the driver's seat. 
and we're critical of any type of process evangelism, and we're quoting the book of James and Matthew 25, like it's a pendulum moving back and forth throughout the history of the church. If you're around me long enough, you'll hear me drop one of my favorite phrases. Balance is something that we swing to, swing through on our way to the other extreme. Okay? And that happens. This is just one more example. Evangelism alone is not the whole counsel of God. Winning souls alone is not the whole counsel of God. Feeding the poor alone is not the whole counsel of God. There is more to the whole counsel of God about living in this world and bringing the gospel than merely just converting a soul or filling a belly, right? And, and God is not, when I look at the word, God is just as interested with, with both of these things. And so to try and pit one or another in the boxing ring to see which one should win out for our theology or for our resources seems pretty silly. God makes it clear that the whole person is significant, body and soul. He's just as concerned about our base needs like food and water and shelter and clothing as he is about the condition of our soul. He's not just interested in one or another. And if the body of Christ doesn't start adopting a both-and approach, I think, to evangelism and social justice together, we're not going to do really either very well in either category because they're designed to be pursued together in a healthy tension. The principle, I think, behind both of these examples is that so many times we want to emphasize we want to emphasize one that's more familiar to us and the less familiar gets de-emphasized. And rather than allowing God to educate us and allowing God's spirit to shape us and hold these things in attention with one another in a both-and mindset, we start to see them as polarized. We start to see them as either-or. And I believe that sometimes that either-or fallacy can be a very, very dangerous distinction in the body of Christ. Now, I want us to think about that mindset, that, that, that both-and versus either-or, and let's look at the Lord's Prayer real quick, okay? The working title that I picked for this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer was Live the Prayer. And it's because the, in the idea of life as a disciple, living as a disciple of the Lord is a both-and concept. Sometimes I believe that individually in his churches, we have been guilty of playing either or with the three principal parts of following Christ. Pitting identity, knowing the truth makes me a disciple. Feeling, having the experience with God makes me a disciple. And action, doing rightly, is what validates me as a disciple. Knowing, feeling, action. And we have put all of those things into the boxing ring and seeing which one comes out on top. What, mean, what matters more? Knowing the right things, feeling the right things, or doing the right things? And admittedly, I have come from a tradition where knowing probably was more important than doing, but doing was much more important than feeling. The idea of religious experience was kind of scary to us. We actually did not want you to have a religious experience, and if it looked like you were going to have one during worship, we had a prayer. Right? Okay. And yet, and yet, and yet you, could, you could really kind of look at all of the various strains of, of Christian thought and say in all of them it has been trying to you know, find a healthy tension between this thinking and feeling and will, thought and feeling and will. And are they all working together or, is, or are we just emphasizing one? 
Are we just emphasizing the feeling and the religious experience and the emotional experience of being filled with the Spirit of God? Or are we just, in, or are we just emphasizing thought and thinking right and knowing all the true tenets and having good orthodoxy? Or are we just emphasizing, well, you can't do that and not be out in the world. You can't not feed the poor. You can't not spread the gospel. You can't not live a holy lifestyle. You know, which one are you going to emphasize? Well, Jesus never does that. Jesus never does that. He doesn't say, well, it's all wrapped up in thinking right. Well, it's all wrapped up in feeling right. Well, it's all wrapped up in doing right. Jesus says, follow me. All of me. <laughs> okay? Look at how I think. Look at how I feel. Look at what I do. Live with me. Live with me. Okay? And so when we look at that in, in the context of the Lord's Prayer, we see that living as a disciple is a blend of thought and emotion and will together. And when we read the prayer, I, we, we, we can't look at it as an either-or lens. The most common way that I think we look at this sometimes in the, in the either-or is we look at this as a form prayer from Jesus. And it's easy because if you, look at the, if you look at it in Luke, in Matthew it's happening in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. So he's already talking about prayer and then he brings in, the Lord, he brings in this example of the Lord's Prayer. In Luke it's response to a question. The disciples say, Lord teach us how to pray the way that John taught his disciples how to pray. And if we aren't careful, we're thinking that the disciples are asking, teach us how to pray because they don't know how to pray. Let's back up on that for a second, okay? The disciples are Hebrew, okay? They are Jewish people, okay? Like, you think you grew up going to church? You didn't grow up going to church like they grew up going to church, okay? They, they, they didn't even speak Hebrew in their culture, but they knew Hebrew. Why? Because they needed to know it in order to know the prayers of the Lord. <laughs> right? They knew form synagogue prayer. They knew prayer. They are not coming to Jesus saying, teach us how to pray because they don't know how to pray. They, they know the correct way to pray. And they know the correct things to think about when you're praying. And they know the attitude that you ought to have toward God when you pray, they know all those things already. So why are they asking this question? Lord, teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples. What's the real question behind the question there? Okay? They're not looking for a copy of Prayer for Dummies. Okay? They're asking Jesus to provide them with a model of his lifestyle of prayer like the other rabbis, including John. It's an identity question. It's an identity question. If we're going to be like you, Jesus, how would we be praying? And Jesus seems to associate praying with living a lot. He doesn't take prayer and like section it way off into this. Again, 
Just like he harmonized Sabbath and work, he harmonizes praying and living. You see prayer just kind of just this natural thing that just kind of flows out of Jesus while he's living. Right? Sometimes it's him stealing off and taking a few minutes alone to pray with his father. Sometimes it's him praying right into and in the middle of a situation. Whatever you see him doing, it is, guide, it is being guided by the Spirit of God because he is about the business of praying his life. Praying his lifestyle. Not praying as something that pulls you out of lifestyle and you pray and then you go back into life. And so the question that they're asking is like, we see, okay, we see that, that the way that you pray is really, really different because the way that you pray is life. The way that you pray is, is, you, is you live what you pray and praying is part of living for you. It's not something that's sectioned off into the synagogue for you. It's not something that's sectioned off into a form. How do I do that, Jesus? And Jesus responds with this prayer. And like I said, if we're not careful, we look at it as a form prayer. Okay, cool. So as long as I do this, 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 this okay, cool. I'm praying well now. It's good prayer. And I don't really think that that's what Jesus is driving at here. Okay, I think what Jesus is driving at is, you know, one, this is, good, this is what is going to distinguish you as my disciples, is if these are the things that you are concerned about and these are the things that dominate and drive your life. Okay, but then the other, as he's saying, is if this is your identity, then these will be your actions, and your actions will inform your identity, and your identity will then inform your actions. And it's a both-and prayer. It's a both-and way of praying. It's not just about knowing all the right things and praying those things. It's not just about doing the right prayer. And doing the right things out of that prayer. It is about identity and action not being two separate things anymore. It's about identity and action being all wrapped up together in a both-and harmony of the Spirit of God. If you, look at the, if you look at most of the letters of the New Testament, there is an identity and there is an action section to each of them. Think about it. What's Romans 1 through 11? It's identity. There, there, you would be hard-pressed to look at Romans 1 through 11 and find a lot of instructions for what to do as a disciple. You find a whole lot about who you are, right? And then everything from Romans 12 through the end of the book is, now that you know who you are, here's what you do. The Sermon on the Mount is the same way. You look at the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, it's blessed are you because you are salt and you are light and you are this and you are that. And it doesn't tell you a whole lot about how to be a disciple, but it tells you who you are. And then the rest of it is because this is who you are, this is what you do. And I, I mean, I'm not kidding. You can, go, you can look at Ephesians, you can look at Colossians, you can look at Philippians. It is like the same form. And the whole idea is that identity and action are supposed to be all melded together, but we like to separate those things out. We like to either focus on, okay, well, what do you, just tell me what you do. Just tell me how to be a disciple. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Or, okay, I'm doing all this stuff and I don't understand why I'm doing it, so tell me who I am. So, did, I mean, forget the do stuff. Just tell me who I am for a little while. 
And God's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like, it, like who you are and what you do are all together. They're all together. Um, I like, like one of the other way, one of the only other ways I can think of to explain it is, so many of us, you know, I think of, I think of Graham and Vaughn, I think of Scott, Stacy, you know, I think, of, you know, I mean, it, it, I mean, as as first time parents, though, though a lot of us are, you know, we get to we get to do this again, right? But especially for like Graham and Yvonne and Scott and Stacy, very recently, they walked out of a hospital with a little bundle, okay. And they were called parents. Ta-da! And if they're anything like I was when I walked out with that little, not so little bundle, now, what happened to you? How did you get so big? All right. But I, I mean, if they're anything like me, they walked out and you're like, okay, they're calling me a parent, but I have no idea how to live. I have no idea what to do as a parent. We spend the next 20 years figuring out how to do what we are. And by the time we figure out how to do what they are, what we are, they're already grown up and they're gone. You know, I mean, like, that's, that's what I keep getting told, right? But it's the same way for us as disciples. We have been named this. We have been given this identity. And the doing helps us explore the identity. And as we drive fuller into the identity, it helps us in our action. They're all together. so the challenge for us is not to merely understand and believe the prayer or merely to do the prayer right. It is to be able to understand and believe and identify and act out of the things that it expresses altogether. It is to live the prayer, to make it a part of who we are and have it change how we live. And with that in mind, I want us to turn to the very, very first petition that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, out of the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Already we went into a challenge at this word hallowed. Uh, we have the holiday, Halloween, coming up next week. And, uh, and if you do any sort of etymology or history, uh, you know there's a whole mashup of like churchy and non-churchy history kind of surrounding Halloween. And I don't even want to get into that. Okay, I just want to focus on the name. Okay, Halloween is our shortened version of All Hallows Evening. In the ancient church calendar, November 1st is All Saints Day. In the evening before, it was considered to be a time of intense sanctification, consecration, as people prepared to honor the saints, those who were holy in the sight of God and had gone on before us. And so realistically, when we look at this word hallowed, it is the same idea as sanctified or glorified. It implies a purity, a holiness that is visible, a holiness that is on display, a holiness that is evident. And that brings us to the idea of your name. And again, I don't want us to get tripped up by that either. There is a tendency, I think, that's been in Christianity, both ancient and more modern, to look at the name of Jesus or the name of God in an almost superstitious sense, as though accessing the power of the name could unlock special spiritual stuff. 
This is the kind of thing that Paul writes against when he's writing against the Gnostics and Colossians. He's like, this is not a, this is not a vending machine. The name is not, the, the name and the power associated with the name is not like, you know, put your prayer in, oh, look, receive the stuff. You know, that's not the way it works. Okay, one of my very, very favorite stories is, is in Acts chapter 19, I think. Hang on, alphabet. What letter of the alphabet is S? Help me. Don't make me count it all the way out. L-M-N-O-P-Q-R-S, 19, I was right, yes. Okay, all right, how do I know that? Okay, because in sixth grade, my dad taught the class on Acts in our church. And because Acts is just a little bit over 24 chapters, they had these really cool little mnemonic devices for remembering what was in the chapter. So like Acts chapter 1, it was the letter A, amazing ascension, apostles add another. Got it. I still remember that, okay? You know, and you just went all the way through, you know, and like chapter 7 is G, and it's where Stephen gets stoned. Godly guy gives a great sermon, and then the gang gravels the gentleman, okay? It just, it, you know, right? And we get to Acts chapter 19, and we get to my favorite story. Seven streaking sons of Sceva. I love that story. You guys are like streaking in the Bible? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Why? Because they don't even believe in Jesus. They're just using the name. They're like, there's power in the name of Jesus. We see Paul using that power. We think that's a fun idea. Let's try doing that. And so they go out and they start like trying to cast out demons. And they're like, in the name of Jesus of whom Paul preaches, I command to you, come out. And the demon goes, okay, I know Jesus. And I know Paul. And I know your lunch. And as the text so holy says, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Okay? Because they thought that the name was something to be used for them rather than the name being glorified for the sake of the name. And so when we get into this idea of hallowed be your name, sanctified and glorified be your name, the focus is the, the name is not glorified so that I can get stuff out of the glory of the name. The name is glorified because it's the name of God. And I live for the glory of the name of God. Don't get me wrong, there is, there is incredible power in the name of God and in the name of Christ, but it is not a superstitious power to be used for my benefit. Instead, the power of the name, it is in reference to the fullness, the identity of God. God's name is Yahweh. I am that I am. His name is Him. Jesus' name means the Lord saves, and that is the core identity and action of Jesus as part of His greater name, the world, the word, the logos, the fully revealed image of God. Everything about his name is who he is. His name is, is his life. And so when we're saying, hallowed be your name, we're, we're, we're saying more than just, just the name of Jesus. When we sing this, you know, nothing has the power to save but your name. We're not talking about some silly superstitious, if you just say the name, you'll be saved. That's not what that's about at all. Nothing has the power to save but who you are, which is so eloquently expressed in the name the Lord saves. The revealed full word of God. See, you get where, you get where this is going? So I live to glorify the name is not just I live to glorify 
a title. I live to glorify who he is. And everything that goes into that. And we put this together and see that the imperative petition of Jesus is simply God be glorified over everything in my life. And that's where we really see this lifestyle aspect of prayer begin in the first sentence. This isn't wishful thinking on Jesus' part. This isn't wishful thinking on our part. It's not like proclaiming long live the king, which really means I really hope that the king lives to be a ripe old age. It's not subjective. Matthew and Luke actually use the imperative language. It's, it, this phrase is one step away from being a direct command. Be glorified. Like, who commands God, right? But, but be glorified. It's not a might happen. It's a reality. It's a will happen. God will be glorified. And the subjective part is us praying the prayer. May you be glorified through me. May you be glorified. I know you will be glorified. Be glorified, God. May it happen through my life. Jesus is not talking about abstract hope. He's talking about the reality of the glorifying of God and the opportunity for it to happen inside of you and me. But now we run into a problem. How is God going to be glorified when there is nothing really glorifying inside of me? How is he going to be holy when I am the opposite? How is he going to be radiant when I am the opposite? How is he going to be perfect, like we talked about this morning in our class in Hebrews, when I am the opposite? And that's where we get to our reading this morning. I know you were wondering when that was going to finally come into play, okay? You're like, man, it's been, this is a long intro. No, 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 this is actually like the conclusion, okay? Maybe some of you are breathing a sigh of relief. I don't know, but... But this is where we really turn to our reading because this is where our reading gets legs and it stops being an abstract thought of like reflecting God's glory and it really gets to the meat of what it means to live as a disciple. A disciple of Jesus can't by our human nature generate glory for God. We can't generate glory. We've got nothing inside of us that's going to generate it. I can't make honor for God. I can't make him be glorified. But I can do one very, very important thing. I can reflect it. That's probably safer because if I could generate glory for God, I might be tempted to think that that has something to do with me. <laughs> but I can't. So instead, I get the honored task of reflecting his glory. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 draws heavily from this story in Exodus 34 where Moses begins wearing a veil to hide his face from the Israelites. And he's been in the tabernacle with God and frankly when he comes out, his face is lit up from spending time with God, literally. And it's kind of freaky. Because it's, I mean, this is not like glowing like you've spent a week in Cabo and you're kind of tan. I mean, like this is, this is like glowing. I, I don't even know how to describe it, right? Except for, except for, you know, except for the writer, like Luke and Acts, when he says that, that, that they look at Stephen and his face is like radiant, like the face of an angel. That's what we're comparing it to. 
is there is this overpowering radiance that is coming out of Moses, and it kind of freaks the people out a little bit. And so they ask him to wear this veil so that they can still kind of like talk to him and not be freaked out. And that's, that's the image that we get in Exodus 34. But when Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians, he says, you know what, there's another reason that they, there's another reason they wanted him to wear the veil. They wanted him to wear the veil because even though it was kind of freaky that his face is glowing, it's also kind of wonderful because they know that he's been in the presence of God. But the problem is, is that he goes into the presence of God and he comes out with the fullness of God, like radiating out of him, reflecting the glory of God, and then it fades. And he starts to glow less and less and less, and over time he's back to just being plain old Moses again. Until he goes back into the sanctuary of God and he comes out glowing again. He has to keep repeating it all the time. And Paul says, you know what, something really beautiful happened with Jesus. <laughs> we got the indwelling of the Spirit now. I don't stop glowing now. It doesn't fade away. I don't have to go back to being just plain old Travis anymore. Woohoo! I'm excited about that. I hope you are too. All right? I mean, seriously though, I don't have to go back to just being me because now when I reflect the glory of God, it's the spirit inside of him that doesn't leave, that doesn't fade, that doesn't fail, that's reflecting that glory. And now it's not just one guy one time for a little while. It's all of us all the time forever. That is so cool. That is the new covenant that we've been brought into. That's the new reality of God that we've been brought into. Is that all day, every day, in every way, I and you and all of us that are, that are bought by the blood of Christ and live with his spirit inside of us have the ability to reflect his glory. And so the command of the, the command, and not even the command, but just like the, the, the wild question of Paul is like, so why on earth would you want to keep the veil on your face, people? Why would I want to do that? But we who have the Spirit with unveiled faces to be able to see, to be able to actually enter into the presence of God, which we couldn't do without Jesus. And not only just to see that glory and not get totally blown away, but to be able to reflect that glory, we with unveiled faces, boldly, with a hope, go out and radiate. His glory is now overriding my mess. I don't think there's a greater hope in the entire world than the fact that God's glory is overriding my mess. And that hope should give me, should give us the boldness to rip the veil off. So how do we live this prayer with hallowed be your name? How do we make this a marriage of belief and action to truly live this command of God be glorified above all? We rip the veil off our lives, says Paul. We all got this temptation to wear this veil that kind of obscures everything about us. You know? It's kind of like, why, why, are, why are bars that you pick people up in always kind of like dark and hazy with smoke? Because darkness and distance do wonders. <laughs> 
think about it for a second. All right. When things come into the light, you kind of go, interesting. Okay. And so why do we wear that veil of darkness over our faces so often? Because you know what? It may hide God's glory, but it also kind of hides my mess too. A little bit of darkness, a little bit of distance do wonders. And sometimes we come into the assembly of God and we live day in and day out with people and we live with a veil. Because if I can kind of keep things in the dark with you and I can kind of keep you at arm's length, you may not see the glory of God in my mess as much, but you also don't see my mess and that's kind of comforting to me. And the question that Paul poses is like, hey, do we, do we believe that God's glory overrides our mess or don't we? Do we believe that his spirit is transforming us or don't we? Do we believe that reflecting the glory of God is the prayer that we ought to live or should we live the prayer that our heart might want to pray, which is like, just cover it all up with a veil and act like everybody else, please. Don't draw attention to yourself, please. Because people are going to see that you are not an excellent representative of Christ. And it's like, hey, you know what? You're the great representative of Christ. Why? Because when people look at your mess... They can't look at your mess without looking at his glory. Is that a powerful enough hope so that we will take the veil off our lives with people? Do we, do we actually think that that's a, that's a powerful enough hope that we can hang on to it? Because that's what it means to live the prayer, hallowed be your name. My power, my possessions, my position, my whatever, okay? That gets gleefully cast aside as a source of hope or transformation for me. I don't put any trust in that anymore. Because they can't do anything for me, and they can't do anything for my mess. There's only one thing that can do that. The Spirit brings the freedom for me to align my whole life under living for the simple love of the name. And so the question that we ask ourselves, if we ask ourselves, what does it mean to live, hallowed be your name? It really comes down to a blending again of identity and action. Do we believe in who we are now in Christ enough to take the action of removing the veil so that people can see not that we're supposed to be the end all, end all of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, but that we are gleefully following in the footsteps of one who is perfect and we're reflecting the name. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that your name be glorified in this place. And I love that like, like my kids running down the aisle to, to see me, you have given us the ability to come into your presence and be with you. We don't have anything to hide with you anymore. And Lord, I pray that if we don't have anything to hide with you anymore, then we will take such hope and such courage in that that we won't hide anything from the world anymore. That we will truly live 
for the glory of your name. That we will be happy to cast off any of the masks that we wear that try to make us look good in order to embrace the greatness of living for your name. Of living for your holiness. O Father in heaven, your name be glorified. We know that it will. But may we seize the opportunity to let it be glorified through us. By the power of the name, of the identity of who your son is that even allows us to bring this prayer into your presence. We do pray. Amen.